0: Welcome to Women Behind the Scenes. I'm Eloise Singer, a filmmaker and founder, and this is a podcast that shines a light on the creators behind some of the most impactful and acclaimed movies of the moment. Salih al-Husseini's recent BAFTA-nominated film, The Swimmers, is a poignant drama based on a real-life story of two Syrian sisters, Yusra and Sara Mardini. The film depicts their journey across continents, from leading a sinking dinghy of refugees to safety in the Aegean Sea to Yusra competing at the Rio Olympics. Although the production of The Swimmers was nearly derailed by the pandemic, the belief and determination of Sally and the crew kept momentum going. I had the pleasure of catching up with Sally in London to chat about her process of making the film and how it came to find its home on Netflix. He says he can get us on a boat to Greece. There's no more room in the boat! Thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me. It's wonderful to be here with you. You, Sally, are the director and co-writer of The Swimmers, which is an incredibly powerful and moving film that's out on Netflix at the moment. I'd love to chat to you, first of all, about your journey into film and what led you to be a director. Thank you for having
1: me. Nobody in my family is involved in film, so it wasn't even on my radar that a profession in television or film was a possibility. It wasn't something that anyone I knew did. So I actually went to university to study Arabic language and Middle East politics and it was late one night when I was trying to memorise these really complicated Arabic verbs that I thought this really isn't me, it doesn't come naturally to me, I'm not a linguist, what am I doing? (laughs) I've messed up my life. And I thought back and I thought the only times I'd really been happy were when I was taking photographs. I used to take a lot of black and white photographs and develop them. And was really into photography during my teen years. I inherited my dad's old SLR camera from when he was a student. And so, you know, I was shooting 35mm SLR camera and I loved telling a story. And so for me, it was going around the marketplaces and the bazaars in Cairo and going out and doing street photography. That was what I was really into and just capturing little moments and being very subtle so people didn't know you were photographing them and capturing all these things. And I also wrote a lot of poetry and I thought, what job would combine images and words in a poetic way and involve people? Because I really love being around all sorts of different people. And I had this really weird, like, lightbulb moment, and I thought, it's film. That's where you combine images, words, and people. And that, that really was the moment that I thought, I want to be a filmmaker. And I then proceeded to tell my brother, who said, don't you dare drop out of university. Mum will kill you. Uh, you're not allowed to do that. And what you really need to do is finish your degree. And if you still feel the same way at that point, then you, there's no reason why you can't do that. And he said, just study the people you like, watch the people you like, see what they did and copy them.
0: Honestly, that really, really resonates. I studied international relations and then changed to politics. And similarly, no one in my family has worked in the film industry. And I went to uni and I can remember literally saying to my brother, I don't want to study a degree. I just want to be working in film. I love film. And he literally said, don't drop out. And so I went and did my degree and I loved learning and I love the idea of learning. And I think studying international politics specifically really shaped the stories that I now am driven to tell. But it definitely felt like a moment I shifted and knew that film was what I wanted to go into. So it's really interesting that that yeah, that's was so sort of, similar, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> again, similarly in terms of photography, I grew up in South America. And so I can remember being given a camera and sort of going around and documenting our time there and really getting into photography and loving the medium and developing a sort of eye for how to structure a photograph and what the framing should look like and things like that and sort of loving that process we have so much in common yeah it's amazing (laughs) isn't it it really is and so did you
1: grow up in Cairo was that I did yeah amazing how was that yeah I lived in Cairo until I was 16 you know I'm Mm. half Welsh half Egyptian never feeling fully from one place so you always see the other side of the argument you always have empathy for both conflicting views of something that's Where I always sat was kind of in the messy middle of grey areas and um, seeing it from everybody's perspectives and realising why people had disharmony and usually being a bit of a diplomat, actually. Third child, middle sibling, always ending up being the diplomat and smoothing things over for everybody. And at 16, I went to this amazing place, which was one of the United World Colleges, Atlantic College, which are a group of schools that they were set up almost like a charity. So you have a student body from like over 100 countries and you all studied the International Baccalaureate. It's, it's all about international understanding. And so I think my experience at Atlantic College really allowed me to not only know people from all over the world, but to learn about different cultures, customs, views. Because one of the philosophies of Atlantic College and the United World Colleges is that education should be a force to unite. So you should be able to go to that school irrespective of social status, income, sex, birth, economic status. So it's it's an entirely scholarship run school. for that reason
0: really amazing and also just yeah fascinating how it shapes your perspectives on the world as well i'm really interested so when you entered the world of film you started off in documentaries among many areas i'd love to just hear about your journey into film and moving into documentaries and then also moving away from documentaries and more into narrative work and what what led you to do that
1: Yeah, so in those days you had grants for university and I had used up my grant on my first degree and going to a film school just wasn't on the cards financially. So the only way I could get into the industry was by actually working and speaking Arabic and having a knowledge of Egypt and the Middle East was my USP. I fell into working on documentaries that were mainly about the Middle East, usually smaller production companies that were making docs for television, for ITV, Channel 4, BBC, um, and sometimes for satellite channels. I was what they glamorously called a self-shooting AP in those days, which basically meant you did everything <laughs> from the research to going out on the ground and shooting and using little PD 150s and 170s and interviewing people and then coming back to the edits. often the editor didn't speak Arabic and didn't know what was being said. So then translating the rushes and sitting in to help with the edit and editorialising the, the work. And so it was a film school. I was employed at the very beginning and saw the projects right through to the end, even though I wasn't specifically a director or a producer. Did it feel quite satisfying to be across the whole process like that? It did. It was a great learning curve. I mean, mainly, I learned a lot working in that way, but I also had issue with it because my role, again, being the diplomat, was often that person whose job it was to make things okay between the subjects and the makers and to be the gel that connected differing viewpoints or explained to each side why things had to be the way they had to be. Mm. (laughs) And so then you often felt like you were put in an awkward position, because I always felt very much on the side of the subjects, more than the makers. And I found that I wasn't really like a hard-nosed journalist type who could dissociate from something that was being filmed. So I worked on this doc series that was like four docs that were shot in Iraq, um, in Baghdad during the war. And we were there at a very difficult time. We arrived actually the same day the big UN bomb went off. And we had kind of gone in on these crazy planes, aid planes, small aeroplanes. And we'd flown over the Golden Triangle while there was sometimes firing up at planes. And we'd done this corkscrew landing, which actually when we were doing it didn't feel as bad as when we were on the ground and saw other planes coming in like that. And then you realise what you'd done. But we we arrived in Baghdad during a really tense time and we were staying in the Palestine Hotel in the Green Zone uh, with all the news crews, which in itself should have been a film. You know, the, the people who are in the elevators in that hotel and the mix of people from different backgrounds. I mean, it was fascinating. Our main fixer on the ground had been an ex-general in Saddam Hussein's army and he took us to his house to meet his wife and children and because it was a time that was very tense, those teenage girls of his hadn't left the house for a really long time. I think it was like they hadn't been out of the house for a year. And they were so excited that we were coming round and we ended up chatting. And I remember thinking, I want to make a film about you. What it's like to live within these four walls and not to leave your house for all this time while all this danger is happening around you. This is really worthy of a, <laughs> of a documentary or a story. But of course, we were being told to point the camera in other places. And it, it was experiences like that that made me realise that maybe a different type of story w- was what I was drawn towards. Mm, And also it feels like
0: being able to have more creative control and being able to sort of work out what the stories that you want to tell rather than being presented with something that you then have to fit the brief that you're given.
1: Yeah, that was something that I struggled with as well, because sometimes we film things and we didn't try to manipulate any of the interviews we did. But then we'd get back to the UK and in the edit, it would be like, oh, but public opinion has changed. And actually, we want to put this slant on it. And I just felt the structure of the way those docs were made, like working towards an ad break, had manipulation in them. Mm -hmm. Because you would have to build up to a cliffhanger before the ad break for people to keep watching. And so this wasn't really the truth anymore because you were making a fiction out of fact. And I thought, well, wait a minute. I think in fiction I can be more truthful than certainly the way that those docs were being made. I mean, look, that's not speaking for all docs. And I hope today it's different and different people are allowed to tell stories in different ways. But certainly that was my first experience. And that's what drove me towards work in film.
0: And so then you moved on and you made My Brother the Devil, which is an amazing film, and then came on to The Swimmers. It almost feels like
1: stories about social impact is something that you're drawn towards. I am drawn towards those stories, but not just those stories. I think the real world and true stories do appeal to me and I find them really inspiring and interesting, but not only those types. And it, I think ideally I'd want to make, all kinds of films about all kinds of people. (laughs) So with The Swimmers, it was a very specific thing that I was trying to do, because when that script came to me that Jack Thorne had written, I was so fascinated by the fact that Sara existed because I'd heard about Yusra and her success at the Olympics, but I didn't actually know that Sara was there also and that Sara had gone through this and that she was an unsung hero and that she'd done something just as heroic as her sister and that this was actually about two heroes. And that's what really fascinated me. And then when I saw who they were, I thought they reminded me of young women I knew growing up in Egypt who aren't the kinds of women you ever see in films. And I hadn't seen a film about them. Certainly not in a narrative that allows them to be heroes. Young Arab girls are often allowed to be victims. There's an honour killing or there's a forced marriage or, you know, it's those kinds of storylines because I get sent all those scripts (laughs) and usually turn them down and you get used to those kinds of issue films. And here was something that was just unashamedly celebrating them achieving their goals and having dreams. Yeah, and their sisterhood as well. That's what's so
0: beautiful about the story. It feels like they have such complementary arcs. You know, Ysra starts off a lot more reserved, I think. And Sara's very much, very headstrong and is definitely the older sister. And then their, as the journey progresses, you can see those arcs and how they develop as young women. And that's something so beautiful and they're so complementary at the same time. And they both shape each other as the voyage goes along that's definitely what sort of stood out to me about the story
1: yeah you're right i mean it's that line in the film that is you're so hard on the outside but soft underneath and they each are the opposite at the beginning of the film and they take a little bit from each other by the end and that that was what we designed, yeah. and, and true to the real young women. I mean, Yusra was, was shy at that time. It's hard to believe that now because she's such a different woman now than the 17-year-old her that first took this journey.
0: What was that first meeting like, meeting Yusra and Sara?
1: It was great. I had a sense of who Yusra and Sara were from googling them and seeing interviews with them. And I went to Berlin, and they knew this lady called Sally was going to be directing the film. And then when we sat down and chatted, and they knew that my siblings were swimmers, and that I had spent a lot of time growing up around swimming pools, and I'd actually worked in the pool office because I wasn't a very good swimmer. Well, I was okay, but I wasn't, you know, like my siblings who were actually competitive. <laughs> and I think they relaxed. You know, Sarah often says I just felt. At ease because I thought, okay, this story's in safe hands now. Um, It's someone who gets us and knows us and knows how to portray us. And I never saw a film like that with these kinds of young women as heroes. And so I wanted to make the film for the 16-year-old me. And that was always my intention. You know, Yusra was 17 and Sara was 20 when they took this journey. I was trying to tap into that teenage me at the age of 16 and a lot of the time i was as i was writing i was thinking back to myself at that time and my friends and what we would talk about and what we would get up to and what was important for us and wanted to capture that energy
0: yeah and it, it is so true there's one scene when the sisters are underneath this sheet and it sort of struck me at that moment how young they were and this journey that they were undertaking and the courage that they had to sort of muster absolutely I'd love to learn a bit more about the casting process and what it was like finding the Issa sisters and also what the Mardini sisters felt to that moment when the Issa sisters came on and whether they all met before you started filming. What was, yeah, what was the story behind that?
1: Yeah, so... Initially, I set out to find Syrian young women and so we searched within Syria and within the Syrian diaspora and we went quite far down the road with some women and we discovered through that process that we weren't going to be able to get work permits because of varying degrees of refugee statuses and paperwork situations that the individuals had. We were filming in Turkey, Belgium, the UK and Berlin and so... Not only getting visas, but getting work permits as well to be allowed to work there was tricky. And so we ended up opening up the casting search to the entire MENA region. But I was really adamant I wanted native Arabic speakers because I knew the bilingual side of the film was very important. And I wanted an Arab audience to see something that was authentically Syrian as much as I could make it so. And so I knew that the actors had to act not only in English, but in Arabic just as well. And so that meant that the pool was even narrower and then you add swimming (laughs) and the pool's even narrower still. And I had actually seen Manal in some independent Lebanese films prior, but had discounted reaching out to her because we were looking for Syrians and then when we opened it up we reached out to her but she wasn't interested because she couldn't swim and I think the casting director had reached out and it was called The Swimmers and there was just like a little pricey so she didn't really know what the project was about fully but she thought oh no I can't swim so she took a little bit of chasing but then when I did meet her and she auditioned we were talking about sisterhood and she mentioned her sisters and she began talking about Natalie and Natalie was studying her masters in literature at the time and wasn't an actor. I ended up asking about Natalie and whether she would want to audition for Yusra, and so through Manal, Natalie came and screen tested. And Natalie read Yusra's book. She read the script. She really liked Yusra and related to her, and came in and auditioned. And when I saw the two of them together in that just natural sister chemistry, <laughs> I knew that I'd found the ones to play the Issa sisters. I mean, it was synchronicity, really to find two sisters to play sisters and they did such an incredible job. Natalie also couldn't swim so both Natalie and Manal went on a really rigorous swim training course and also worked very hard working out and on nutrition plans and swimming and working out every single day in prep for the movie. Sounds like it was a lot of prep for
0: them to kind of start This role, especially, as you mentioned, the fact that they couldn't swim, that must have been a huge undertaking. And for them as well to have the courage to be able to learn
1: those skills for this film, Yeah, Natalie always says that it was that swimming training that allowed her to truly understand Yusra, because it was her developing a relationship with water that wasn't one of fear, but actually feeling the water and appreciating what it was to swim, and her own struggle to go from zero, because the first lessons were literally, your face in the water, to being competent. I mean, they're swimming in the film. We use doubles as well, of course, because there's no way someone can go from nothing to an Olympic level swimming, and certainly not butterfly, which is Yusra's stroke, Um, and Enough, Yustra actually doubled for Natalie in the film. So, in the Berlin parts of the film, it's actually Yustra swimming as the double for Natalie.
0: That's amazing. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's really, really
1: cool. I mean, we wanted Yusra to be involved and do all the doubling, but she was training for Tokyo and she was on a very strict schedule of swimming for Tokyo. And also because of Covid, we shot this film during Covid, it was too risky for her to mix with us too much. And that actually dictated a lot. So I think Sara and Manal were not able to meet. But just by coincidence, Natalie, when she was cast, was doing a semester in Berlin And so she was in Berlin and actually travelled to Hamburg and met Yusra. And they got on so well. I have a photo that they sent me of the two of them together as soon as they met. And she ended up going to Yusra's house and spending the night there. And they hung out all night, talking all night.
0: I love that. And such serendipity as well. That's amazing. And what was the pre-production process like for you? How did you go about the co-writing process with Jack?
1: And then how did you prep for the film? So initially I came on board as the director and Jack was writing the script. And then he did a draft when I was on board and I was giving notes. And I think it just became apparent that I had a lot of lived experience and a lot to say. So I just ended up writing more and not formalizing that as a co-writer really, writing it because it was easier than explaining it to Jack for him to then write it. And so as that became more and more, he was the one who actually turned around and said, we're co-writing, aren't we? And um, he was the one who put the name on it. So he's very generous, Jack. And he realized that there was a lot I wanted to bring to the sisters that I had experienced or that I felt should be in there. And one of the things I did in the script was make the Syria section much bigger, because in his draft, we weren't in Syria very long before they were off on the journey. And I felt That we really needed to understand not only what their lives were in Syria, but also pre-war, what their lives had been. Mm. So that when they are really striving to bring their family over, you understand why and you understand what that means. And you understand what they've lost because refugees have a home. They just can't live there. And I think as an audience member, you have to know what that home is and what that home feels like to know what the loss is.
0: I hear you. And it definitely, for me, it struck seeing their lives in Syria and just showing the realities of what their life was and how they were, these two normal girls who were living effectively high school and going about. And suddenly their country turns into a war-torn state and the effect that that has on them. And that is the cause of them leaving this country and nothing else. And watching the film, it struck me that it could
1: happen to anyone. It literally could happen to anyone. Absolutely. And that's that's what I really hoped for and wanted because 2015 was not that long ago. In order to be a swimmer in Arab society, you have to come from a family that's pretty liberal to allow you as a young woman to be wearing a swimsuit amongst male team members, male coaches. And so that was certainly how it was for them. They were living a slightly more liberal lifestyle, which exists in that part of the world, like I was living in Cairo, with my siblings, my sister and my brothers as, as swimmers. And I really felt that that view of Arabs isn't often seen on screen either.
0: Was it your intention to bring in more Arabic into the story?
1: Yeah, when I first came on board, certainly the script was all written in English and I always knew that I wanted it to be as authentic as possible. I mean, English is the dominant language once you get on the journey, because that's how it was in real life. And part of the reason why Sara and Yusra's story was known was because even on the journey that they took, journalists came along and began interviewing them because they were the English speakers. I mean, they spoke English at home and they often spoke English so their parents wouldn't fully understand and they could say things in the house. But Sara's English was great. And again, with their friends, you know, they would mainly speak Arabic, of course, but they would often flip into English. They could watch films in English. You know, they were bilingual. They're trilingual now. So we really wanted to set that up in the Syrian section as well so that you understood that. So later when they flip into English, it's not weird.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I love the notion of being able to just
1: switch into a different language when you don't want someone to hear the conversation. It's something I really had growing up and really, saw and experienced in that kind of more international environment that I was growing up in.
0: I totally hear you. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And again, it just shows sort of the authenticity of the story as well and how these girls lived
1: and the journey that they went on ultimately. 2015 was not that long ago and Yusra and Sara had iPhones and they were watching the same TV programs and following the same news stories and listening to the same music Um, is interesting because when I read the script I'd had this idea for that scene which wasn't in the script, of them dancing on the rooftop to titanium as the bombs were dropping. And then when I met Yusra and Sara, one of the things I asked them for was their playlists. And I asked Yusra, what do you listen to when you're training and working out and getting hyped and ready for a race? What do you listen to when you're feeling sad? And so they sent me links and playlists and things. And I was so thrilled when she liked Sia and Sia was very prominent. It was Eminem and Sia. And between the two, I felt like, Well, there was really no contest. I mean, great choices as
0: well. (laughs) So it sounds like you had loads of opportunities to kind of chat with the girls. Was that a big part of your research process was sort of liaising with them?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you want to honour the real people as well. And my hope was that at the end of it, they could have a film and watch a film that they were proud of. And so I really wanted to represent them and their spirit and who they were and who they are. <laughs> you mentioned that the making of the film took four years to come to fruition. I'd love to just understand a bit more about that and why it took so long to happen. Yeah, well, my first film took eight years, so I'm halving it So, <laughs> as we go. But yeah, initially this film was set up with focus features. Netflix wasn't involved. And then the pandemic hit and we gone far down the road with Focus and during the pandemic everything fell apart. We were actually in prep when the pandemic hit. So it was quite devastating actually because um, Focus ended up abandoning the film and dropping the project and there was a period where we didn't know if all our hard work would have been for nothing and I mean, we kept the faith and the HODs, the heads of department were incredible because they all turned down work in the hope that it would pull together. And we were all holding out because we were so invested (laughs) in telling this story and had gotten so close to achieving our first day.
0: That must have been a massive challenge, though. How did you feel at that moment when that happened?
1: I was just really sad because I was so close to realising it and could really taste and see and feel the film and knew how important it was, not just to me personally, but... Every time I turned on the news, there was a reminder of the way that refugees were being talked about or I'd read an article everywhere I looked. There were just signs in the universe telling me that this film needed to be made. And, you know, that being too superstitious, I couldn't quite believe that we weren't going to make it. And so I was trying to keep everybody up and was calling everybody nonstop, telling them that we were going to do this no matter what. And it was going to come together and they should just hold on a little bit longer Um, and then desperately trying to make it work, basically. And then Eric Feldman, the producer, contacted me to say he'd had positive conversations at Netflix and that Netflix were considering it. And then Netflix came on board and saved us, really. And they were just incredible to work with.
0: And then, when you finally got the green light from Netflix and you dived back into pre production, was it quite a fast pre production at that point to kind of get everything going
1: again? It was a strange pre production because it was a lot of it was done remotely because of COVID. So it was. A lot of Zooming initially and uh, reconnecting with everybody, but in from from my own home. And then we, when we did all meet, it was like, no, this really is happening. <laughs> it's not just a figment of my imagination. What's incredible is that nearly all the people who were going to make the film the first time around came back and held out and were involved in it. That's amazing. So, yeah.
0: And also so nice for you to be able to work with the HODs who you had developed this relationship with, who I assume that you'd probably worked with on other productions as well, so it was
1: quite nice to be able to kind of effectively bring the family in that you wanted to create this film with. Yeah, no, we'd become, you know, very close and I think you have to cast the crew, not just the cast. Telling a story like The Swimmers, I knew it had to be people who actually cared about the story and that the only way this film was going to be any good was if people cared beyond it being just a job so i was looking for like real connection to the story and passion and people who were prepared to go the extra mile you know we we had Syrian refugees working behind the camera as well as in front of the camera we cast some Syrian refugees in the supporting cast in that main group of refugees that travel with them There were people who'd gone through their own crossings and their own journeys and having Hassan to work with Hassan Akkad who's our associate producer who's a Syrian refugee in this country although he just got his British citizenship actually so he's yeah, Now British, but um, he took that same journey and he filmed it on his mobile phone and his crossing and watching his phone footage of his own crossing and his boat was taking on water and some people went in the sea. You know, it really informed how we shot the crossing and what it felt like. And having that firsthand experience was really important for all departments.
0: That scene of the crossing feels so emotive. It would be amazing to hear a bit more about filming that. But I'd love to also just know what it was like working with such a diverse group of crew members and were you able to give emotional support to those who were refugees
1: who were, in a way experiencing this again? And what was that like? Yeah, I'm I'm very proud of the fact that Netflix have in place therapy for all cast and crew, like free therapy. And certainly members of the cast and crew took that up and they had that right across the process. So I'm proud of the fact that we were able to support people like that. But often people's reasons, they had differing reasons for wanting to relive it in a safe space. So for... Amin Al-Hussain, who is one of the cast members, but he also ended up working as an edit assistant during the edit with us in post and is now working his way within the camera department up to being a cinematographer. You know, he felt that it was ultimately a healing experience for him because he was able to relive it and to tell the story of what he experienced and share it with so many people. And then we had the Tatari family who were a husband and wife and his brother and then their three kids who decided to join us for the whole three-month shoot in Turkey. And they hadn't taken that journey themselves, but they chose to take part in the film because many of their family members and friends had taken those journeys. And they wanted their children to really understand what was happening to their extended family and their friends and their people. And that was their way of educating their children about that. We had an incredible marine safety team as well, like one of the best ones in the world, and we filmed all the daytime crossing in open water in the, on the Aegean coast where crossings were happening. So when we were wrecking that location, we saw boats crossing, um, we saw Coast Guard ships chasing those boats with our own eyes, and that was where Yusra and Sara had really set off from, and that's where we filmed our crossing. So there was this whole feeling amongst the crew that we were going to the place where this was still unfolding, and we were doing something, although a fiction that was. Still going on around us. But the marine safety team were there all around us in dinghies, and anytime anybody needed to stop, all they had to do was raise their hand and everything would stop. And all the baby shots were shot very close to shore. You know, the crew, the cast, all singing baby shark to the baby. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it, it was a safe environment as much as you can be safe in open water. And those waves were real. And there was this feeling of solidarity amongst the cast. I felt like a group of 25 individuals got on that dinghy. And after the first days filming, when they got off, they were a family. And that night in the hotel they were all sitting together and there was this bond and this camaraderie that had built up as a result of how tough it was to film in that environment. We only had two days to film The Crossing. so
0: That's tight. Yeah. <laughs> Especially for the amount of logistics that you would have had to navigate. As a director, was that seen the biggest challenge for you in the film?
1: One of them, but you know what? I went into a lot of days feeling like this is really challenging. A lot of days were hard, hard, hard days. I mean, we had 58 days of filming, but it is an epic movie. And filming with the numbers of people, with the COVID restrictions, water, children, animals, constantly on the move. So only in a location once. And then the next day we'd have to move. So knowing that you could never return somewhere to a location and knowing you had to achieve it. In the hours you had, it was pretty intense. Tough. Our cinematographer, (laughs) um, he lost two stone, actually, shooting the film. He called it the El husseini Diet.
0: (laughs) It's intense. It's really intense. And especially on the move so much, it's not only the pressure to get the shots that you needed to get in the day, but also just the toll that you're putting your body under to be moving that much. And if you think you're shooting... 12 to 14 to 16 hour days and then having to think about moving and then having to settle in the hotel that night and then having to get up the next day and then having to do
1: it again that's what wears people down yeah I mean, also the style of the cinematography, I really wanted the camera to be a character with the actors on the journey and for us to be telling this story from the inside, looking out rather than objectifying the characters in any way so that the audience truly felt intimate with our leads and felt that they were on the journey too. And so that type of visceral camera work means that Chris was (laughs) there doing everything that actors were doing, walking those train tracks in the boiling heat, jumping over things, going over (laughs) underneath the fence, um, all the crawling about and then tiny nooks and crannies and jammed into the backs of trucks and in the water. And so, bless him, he was such a good sport and did such an amazing job. As you say that, sort of level of camera
0: work must have taken a a massive toll. I mean how did you guys plan what the visual language of the film was going to be? Did you set the look beforehand? Yeah I'd love to just hear kind of what camera did you use and what lenses did you use and how did that dictate
1: how you were going to film it? Approaching this project from the very beginning I knew that a lot of the images in the film were things we'd seen on our TV screens, seen on the news for example and I wanted to push as far away from those news images as I could to let this be a cinematic experience and to allow an audience into the story in an emotional way that you don't normally feel when you watch the news. So when you see those images on the news, it's very easy to sympathise. But I really wanted an audience to empathise. And sympathising allows a distance between you as the observer and who you're sympathising with. And that distance, I think, allows you to like change the channel and watch a box set and forget about it and think that's sad, that's terrible. But again, to push it away and really what cinema can do is allow you to walk around in someone else's shoes and really feel their journey and so that I was always striving for that empathy and we chose in the end the Sony Venice with the Crystal Cook Express lenses because they're handmade lenses that have a lot of imperfections in them no two lenses are the same and they are very emotive actually they're not always clear and that imperfection is very humanizing and that is more motive and we had come up with this idea that everything underwater would be subjective and everything above water was objective reality so in the water there was memory and trauma and nightmares and dreams and hopes and feelings and this kind of more subjective realm where it was a non reality And time would slow down or speed up and everything above land would be a more objective space. And that would be the way we could access more psychological aspects of the characters' journeys and what they were going through. That underwater, above water idea was something. And then also we thought that every swimming pool in the film would get more and more professional until she was at Rio. But... We knew that Yusra and Sara's story, because it's unique and special, it is a 1% story, and we also wanted to represent the 99%. We did that through Nizar, their cousin, who travels with them. But we also did it visually. And we chose like moments where you'd be intimate, but then you'd pop out into like the shot of the life jackets or a big wide shot of people walking along a track. And those were really to give a bit of context. So you'd be close in with the sisters, but then you could pop out to these wide shots for context that would tell the larger story as well. I'd love just to learn
0: about what your biggest lesson was from making this film and what you would take onto your next project.
1: As a director, you often feel that you have to be in control of everything. But I think what The Swimmer's taught me is that it's also about letting go. And it's, it's this strange relationship of being a control freak, but then having to let go and to go with where you are in that minute. It was so logistically challenging so often because we were making an epic, epic film on a fraction of what you would normally have budget-wise to make an epic film with. This film had no stars, it was partially in Arabic, and although it was the biggest budget thing I've ever done, it was still a small budget for what we achieved and what we were aspiring to, too. So, so much planning (laughs) went in, and in order to achieve it, you have to be across everything and such a control freak, but then you In the moment on the day, you just have to say, well, it's COVID. It is what it is. I've got what I've got and to make it work in that moment. And it was something that we faced day after day after day of letting go of the imagined things and just seeing where you were in that moment. And beautiful things were found in that way. Things that were spontaneous and ended up in the film.
0: And sometimes having those constraints on you actually allow you to kind of think outside the box in a way because it forms you to think okay I do just have to find a way around this which as filmmakers I think is a good thing because ultimately sometimes if you do have the infinite budget and you have everything that you need there's a danger in a way that we could get a bit lazy whereas when you're restricted you do sometimes the best ideas come out of those limitations that you have yep just to wrap up as a final question I'd love to learn one thing that you love about this industry and one thing that you
1: would love to change about this industry I just love the filmmaking I mean that's why I'm in this industry it's all about the work for me and that's my favorite thing it's The coming together of teams of people and sometimes it seems crazy what we do, you know, building this fiction in a way, but then you share it with an audience and you hear how that has affected people, impacted people, and ultimately it's just that process of sharing stories on a fundamental level is, to me, the most important thing in the world. And what's one thing that you would change? So... If I have to be restricted to just one thing to change about the industry, because there's actually lots of things I'd like to change about the industry, I'd say it's probably how elitist it can be. As somebody who, you know, didn't know anybody in this industry and really have now been working for like over 20 years in the industry, I started out literally not knowing anybody. And I feel like it's still tends to be slightly nepotistic but I don't mind the nepotism because I understand it because if you are in it I can see how that can be a familial thing because it's so all-consuming but I suppose it's just sometimes I feel that it's just not open enough to people from different backgrounds different viewpoints different socio-economic backgrounds and I think that there's like a class issue and you know I'm someone who's had privilege in my life and I'm here often telling underdog stories that I can really relate to. But I want people from other backgrounds that are not as privileged as me to be telling their own stories as well and shining a light on those things. So I think that'd be the main thing I'd change. I love that. And also, if we all tell
0: the same stories all the time, because all of us are from the same background, What's the point? We have to have diverse stories. We have to have yeah. narratives that are different, that are challenging opinions, that are shaping perspectives, that are inspiring change. It's so fundamental to what this industry is about. So, uh, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, Sally, I could talk to you forever. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank it's you. been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. And yeah, I think The Swimmers is absolutely brilliant. So thank you for telling this story. Thank you very much. And everyone should watch it on Netflix. Everyone should watch it on Netflix. (laughs) Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So listen, if you enjoyed this episode and you fancy subscribing, then that would be fantastic. But more importantly, if there's someone out there who you think might enjoy learning about these incredible filmmakers, please do send this series their way. Women Behind the Scenes was hosted by me, Eloise Singer. The executive producers are myself and Cathy Anderson. The producer is Ben Weaver-Hinks. Production manager is Hannah Alexander. Post-production was done by Matt McGuinness. Editing, mixing and mastering was by Tom Fred Bradshaw at iGame Audio. Music was from premiumbeat.com. And our production assistant is Lucy Davidson.